You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with uh, Sebastian Malaby, who is Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, also the author of, wow, a number of books. I have a couple of them with me here that I've read back in the day, including this one, The World's Banker, all about the World Bank, and Jim Wolfenson, and this one, More Money Than God. It's a history of the hedge fund industry, and of course, most recently, this book called The Power Law, Venture Capital, and the Making of the new future. Welcome, Sebastian. Great to be with you, Greg. So this book, I mean, you said that it had two purposes. One was to explain venture capital, and then the other is to kind of evaluate it and see if it is a net contributor to the world. And I guess I want to start off by asking you about the explanation piece, because I studied finance right, for many years and taught finance for many years on, on the East Coast. And so I was steeped in all of the quantitative methods, right? And all the valuation techniques that are used by buy-side analysts and by private equity groups or LBO groups, as they were caused, called back in the day. And we would focus on EBITDA. And if we were pricing a derivative, we had these complex mathematical models. And then when I came out to California and I got more familiar with venture capital, I realized that almost none of that was useful in, in this industry. And it's, it's not even clear whether or not venture capital belongs in the domain of finance for, from an academic perspective. I mean, obviously it is about provisioning companies with, with money, but the techniques and the methods, they, they seem to be really a mix of finance, psychology, strategy, network theory, <laughs> organizational dynamics. I mean, it, it seems like it's barely finance. I mean, I think that comes across in the book that it is something which is kind of at least as much art as science. I mean, I don't know whether that's, I should probably shouldn't use that language, but that's kind of the message. I mean, is that a fair description? Yeah. I mean, I actually call it finance without finance. That's one of the chapter titles in my book. And it's precisely for the reason that you say, the first thing you would learn if you study traditional finance would be discount the cash flow to figure out the value, think about the price ratio to the ratio to the book value and all that stuff. And you obviously can't do price to book when there's no book value because you've just got two individuals who walk into your office saying they want to do a startup and it's their dream and they tell you a story and they don't actually have any assets to contribute to book value. They just have this idea. And the same thing with earnings, of course, there's not going to be any earnings for a while. So this is finance without any of the traditional financial tools that give you quantitative benchmarks, advising you whether to do the investment or not. And it's just sort of like judging the future, judging the individuals who say they're going to build that future, judging their embeddedness, as you said, that I think network theory is part of it because part of the success will come from whether these individuals have the standing in their communities to hire the early engineers who will take a bet on their company and get stock options, which will be worth zero if it doesn't work. So credibility, storytelling, 
embeddedness in the network, the sense of vision, the sense of passion and commitment from the founding team. These are what the VCs are looking for. And another point that you make is that economists like to sort things into markets and firms, right, a la Ronald Coase. But in order to understand venture, you have to understand this kind of more fluid structure, right? Sometimes called networks, but it's really about the fluid movement of ideas and and of people across these entities, right? Yeah. I mean, as you say, uh, the classic Ronald Coase distinction, uh, the two big institutions that make capitalism work, as he explained to us, where you have markets with price signals and the price signals help to allocate resources. Or you can have firms where there's top-down direction by strategic managers who coordinate uh, resources in that fashion. And my argument about venture capital is it's kind of a hybrid where you do have the strategic top-down direction of resources because you have venture capitalists who operate a bit like the directors of the strategic innovation department of a big corporation. They have a budget of money, i.e. their fund, and they allocate that between different applied science projects, i.e. different startups, and they're taking a strategic view. But then the round that they provide in the investment, that money, that runway will run out in nine months or something. And then the startup needs to go out into the marketplace to find the next tranche of capital, and there will be price discovery. And if nobody hits the bid, the business will go out, the startup will fail. And so it's this mixture of price signals and top-down direction, which I think is a grown to the point now where we ought to acknowledge that there is this third pillar of how capitalism works, namely venture capital-backed startups. And I think you, you said there was uh, my colleague, Annalie Saxenian, that really began to describe how this works. And, and of course, she was trained as a, a sociologist, not as an economist. Exactly, yes. I owe a lot to her writing. She wrote this famous book called Regional Advantage. I think it was published in the early 90s. And it compared Route 128 around Boston and the technology ecosystem that used to exist there and Silicon Valley. And the mystery that she was trying to explain was how come Route 128 had been ahead right up until around 1980. And then in the 1980s, Silicon Valley just speeded into the lead. And her argument is that Silicon Valley is more porous in terms of its industrial sociology, that ideas and people can move out of one company into another company very easily because there's this high circulation of the the staff, you know, keep on jumping jobs. Startups rise, fall, get merged into each other. Uh, When they fail, all the people go off and work for some other startup. So the porousness of the institutions means that ideas don't get bottled up in one organizational structure. And then if those ideas don't yield a good result, the ideas are dead. Whereas that is the problem in the more hierarchical Route 128 structure where you had more secretive, vertically integrated companies. And if some engineer halfway up the ladder had a great idea for a new product, but that product was threatening the existing product line of the company, then maybe the head of the research department would say, we're not doing that because it's going to cannibalize our own thing. And then that idea would just die. Whereas in the Silicon Valley model, that engineer would have quit and gone off and the idea would not be wasted. And what what I'm trying to add to that 
great analysis by Anony Saxenian is to say, okay, which is the professional tribe that is most incentivized to make this circulation of ideas and money and people really operate in a healthy, productive fashion? And my argument is that it's the venture capitalists who are paid, basically, to get up in the morning and have breakfast with one person uh, and then have 14 cups of coffee with different people, hopefully decaffeinated before they go to bed, uh, because they're always out there meeting the next five engineers that might be hired by the company that they backed last month, meeting the next 10 entrepreneurs that they might want to back, meeting the entrepreneur they backed three years ago and who's now thinking about the exit or something's going wrong or whatever. It's a network business. And I met plenty of VCs, and I tell these stories in my book, who really made it their mission to be super connectors. And they worked hard at it, and they would go have lunch with people. And at the end of each lunch, they would say, tell me who the two smartest people are that you know in the Valley. And then they would go see those two people. Uh, and they would grow their networks in this way, maintain the network by sending little updates to those people that they've met already. Here's a professional, a scientific article that you might find relevant. Oh, I was speaking last week to a servant, so they asked how you were doing. So keeping it fresh, keeping the connections alive, and that's how when the right opportunity arises and the new startup gets formed, you know who to call to slot into that new startup to make it successful. Well, I think one of the main points of your book is that if you want to understand venture capital, you can't think of it as like a stock picking exercise. The most successful venture capitalists are not the ones who are, are simply able to identify good prospects, whether they be good founders or good businesses. I mean, certainly there's a big part of it is being able to identify those things, but that in venture capital by its nature is active, right? the money comes with advice <laughs> and governance, right? And if it doesn't come with advice or governance, then it's not going to benefit either the investor or the startup. And I was teaching corporate finance for many years, and this was a big theme in my corporate finance class, which is debt comes with different kind of advice and governance than equity, and private equity comes with different advice and governance than public equity. And so the story you tell is sort of how this notion of active investing by venture capitalists kind of runs in cycles, right? And we sort of neglect that piece at, at our peril, right? And so when you talk about the rise of what you might call dumb money, right, that, that led to all sorts of, of problems. So, I mean, do people fail to understand that component when they're trying to make sense of venture capital? Yeah, and sometimes the venture capitalists themselves forget that component. And, and this is where I'm critical of the industry. My big picture view is that it's a good thing for the United States, it's a good thing for innovation. And I think that the people who lead the Series A, Series B, sort of early stage investments, they do go on the board, they do pay attention, they are activists, they do provide governance, and that's as it should be. And it, that's a great strength. But I think where it can go wrong is that in the growth stages, when we're talking about Series C, Series D, and beyond, and uh, the investor's writing a much bigger check, and probably the company's already a unicorn, i.e. worth a billion dollars uh, or more in terms of market cap. Um, at that point, the tradition has arisen um, that the investor is much less hands-on. The investor basically writes the check, and says, I don't need a board seat. 
I don't need to second guess what you, Mr. Founder, are doing. In fact, you're a genius because you've started this company and it's already a unicorn. So more power to you. I'm just going to stand back and watch. And that is not governance. And then on top of that, often the Series C investor says, and if you would like to have super voting shares, Mr. Founder, be my guest. You can have 10 votes for every share that you own, and I'll take one vote for every share that I own. And that's anti-governance. That's the opposite of oversight, right? And I think that this is why you get these stories like WeWork, where the founder goes off the rails, Uber, where the founder goes off the rails. And of course, it's those ones which Netflix then will make a movie about, which is not really good for the reputation of the ecosystem. Now, look, you began the story with Arthur Rock and the early days of what we now know of as kind of venture capital, but you could have begun the story much earlier. I mean, you could have talked about Ferdinand and Isabella <laughs> investing with, with Columbus, right? You could have, you know, started with the, the whale ships, right? And the syndicates that were put together to finance them. So what exactly is it that was new about what we think of now as venture capital? I mean, people have always been investing in startups and prospects and funding new businesses. So, so what exactly was new about the stuff that you describe in this book? That's a great question. I mean, you're right that risky ventures, for example, sea voyages or whaling expeditions uh, in New England, were indeed financed rather like modern venture capital. There was kind of a two and 20 structure where the sea captain would take capital from the financial backer and pay them a return where they get the profits, but the sea captain keeps 2% of the money to manage the ship and put the expedition together, and then keeps 20% of the upside if the ship voyage makes a profit. And so to this extent, it's not entirely new. I think what was new when Arthur Rock showed up in 1957 on the West Coast and financed Fairchild Semiconductor was the application of this 2 and 20 kind of model to an onshore company, and specifically an onshore company that was going to do technology, where the upside, where it was kind of as risky as a whaling expedition, and the upside was as big as that too. And of course, back in the day, in the 19th century, whaling uh, generated um, the fuel uh, for making lamps work, and pre-electricity, that was a pretty big business. And so it did have a kind of central role in the economy. The upside was very big if you could do a successful whaling expedition. And the equivalent of whale oil for illuminating people's houses by 1957 was to turn out to be semiconductors, the most sort of exciting technology, which was about to, as we later discovered, double in power every uh, couple of years. So what's new is the application of that 2 and 20 to this new area of uh, semiconductor-powered innovation. Well, what's amazing is all the features of the modern venture capital-backed startup, these things had to be discovered, right? There was a bit of tinkering. So, for instance, American Research and Development, one of the early funders, this was publicly traded, right? And so they had to realize that a limited partner is going to work better. There were other efforts where they would find the opportunity first and then go raise the money, right? And they realized it's better to raise the money first and then go find it. And then the whole idea of paying employees with options, right? This was also something which kind of wasn't there at the beginning. So there were a bunch of these sort of experiments 
before they unlocked the combination of features, which seems to be the recipe for success. Right. I would just add one other early experiment, which I think was misguided, and that was the use of debt. When the government decided it wanted to encourage startups, it created this small business development program, and essentially the government provided debt to funds, which raised some equity. It also provided a bunch of strings, which had attached to that debt, which hampered the ability of the investors to do well. But fundamentally, if you're running a venture fund, you want to back growth companies, which will use capital to grow. You don't want to saddle that growth company with an obligation to service debt and pay you money on a monthly or annual basis. Um, it just doesn't make sense to provide debt uh, if you're focused on growth. Um, and so I think that was another blind alley that, that, that the industry went down in the 60s. And it was really around the early 70s when Sequoia and Kleiner Perkins were both founded as 1972, where the playbook really begins to emerge, where it's pure equity. The equity isn't a fund. It's not a listed vehicle on the stock market, just like you said. You go on the board because this is an illiquid investment. You cannot sell it to get out. So you manage your downside. Since you can't sell, you go on the board and you're an activist and you try to prevent catastrophe by offering advice to the entrepreneur. And finally, you issue the financing in tranches. And that is quite a subtle idea. I think more than we, we take it for granted now that there's a series A, series B and all that. But actually, it was a clever idea because not only did it reduce the risk for the investor to only give a certain amount of limited money at the beginning until the startup proves that it can take the biggest risks off the table, and then you give them some more. So it reduces the risk, obviously, for the investor. But also, it is much better for the startup founder because the startup founder when issuing stock right at the beginning, at the beginning, you've just got a vague idea. It's not worth all that much. So you're going to take a lot of dilution of your ownership just to raise you know, a million bucks or something. If you wait, if you raise a one million and then you just use that to get the biggest risk off the table, now you've got something more valuable and you can raise the next million whilst giving away much less equity. So the founder keeps more control and the investor reduces the risk and that was, I think, the last kind of core innovation that made venture really work. Right. You talked about how some of the early founders were obsessed with this idea of eliminating the white-hot risk in the early stages of, of their investments, right? And separating out the technical risk from the business risk. That's right. And so this came up uh, with Genentech, which Kleiner Perkins backed in the 1970s. Originally, the founders came to Kleiner Perkins and said, okay, we want to use this recombinant DNA technology. We're going to build artificial uh, insulin. It's going to be a great business, but to build the artificial insulin, we need, and then they named some very large number. And it was the idea of Tom Perkins, uh, as in the co-founder of Kleiner Perkins, uh, to say, that's a lot of money. I'm going to give you a much more limited check at the beginning and you're going to prove to me that you're going to get over the first couple of hurdles. And then I'll give you some more money. It'll be better for you and better for me. And so that was the one of the origins of that stage-by-stage -stage financing. The other one I tell a story about relates to Sequoia, where you had Atari, a very different kind of enterprise, this kind of grandfather of uh, video games. And there the problem was not so much technical, because building video games was not technically all that challenging. But it was commercial because the question was, could you sell these things? And Don Valentine, the founder of Sequoia, wanted to invest, but it was a kind of crazy 
disorganization man culture where the founder of Atari would sort of wander around, have notes on pieces of paper that fell out of his pocket as he proceeded around the office, hold his board meetings in a hot tub with cans of beer floating around in, in the hot tub. It was chaotic in terms of the accounting. So Don Valentine was kind of scared to put a lot of money in at the beginning, but he put a bit and then he kind of helped them to write a business plan and land a proper customer. And then he invested a lot. Uh, so again, he was de-risking himself by going in in tranches. Now, I also teach a course on, on behavioral finance. And I remember when I f- first started teaching that class, I used to think that kinds of bubbles that we saw in financial markets were, were limited to public markets. But of course, we've seen <laughs> that's not true. When it comes to deciding where to invest, there does seem to be an element of looking around and seeing what other people are doing, right? So at the end of the book, you you cited this experiment around generating musical hits, right? And and, and it, it showed that in alternative environments, different songs will turn out to be the hits, right? And, and the key thing is, do you get early traction? And if you get early traction, so we all know about how winner-take-all markets work for product, but it seems like there's also kind of a feedback loop when it comes to investing. I, I, heard, I had someone speak in my class recently. I was teaching a class on crypto and he said, venture capital is behavioral investing in the disguise of fundamental investing. Now, I think that's a bit of an exaggeration, but there's all, there's an element of that, right? So you describe these stories where investors were very wary. And then as soon as they found out that their colleagues were investing, their competitors were investing, then all of a sudden they flipped and, and became interested. So to what extent is that an, an integral part of the process? And But to what extent can you have kind of too much of that? I'm going to take two uh, cuts at this question because it's a very interesting one. So the, the first one is about the bubbles point that you began with. And I often joke that if you wanted to invent an ecosystem for generating bubbles, you would insist that all of the investors should have their offices on the same road. We will call it Sandhill Road just for just for an example. And we'll say that there should only be one hotel with a good restaurant on that road. We'll call it the Rosewood. And we'll say that they're all going to hang out at that bar at that hotel uh, and have their meetings there and basically exist in this little bubble. And then they'll all think the same thing and you'll generate bubbles. And it's kind of true. And it's also true that you can't go short in venture capital, unlike in hedge funds. You can't express the view that something is way overvalued because there's no way of being a short seller. You can't even express like verbally the view that something is overvalued because if you were to do that, you would be excommunicated from that Rosewood clique uh, because you would be bad-mouthing other people's deals and that's not popular. And if you want to be syndicated into the Series B, from some colleague of yours at another venture firm, you better be nice to the other Series A investments he's doing right now, even if you think some of them are nonsense. So this is a system for inflating bubbles. And that's why there are always going to be ups and downs in the cycle in venture capital. And that's an element of how the behavioral dynamics work, but it's not the only one. I think, and this is sort of the second part of my answer, I think behavioral dynamics are super interesting when you Think about the question of whether solo venture capitalists, whether that's a good model. It became fashionable in the last three, four, five years. I think partly as a function of the bull market leading up to 2021, because it was relatively easy to raise capital. And if you had some decent claim to be embedded in the Silicon Valley ecosystem, you could go out as an individual and raise some money. And why not do it by yourself? But I think that when you're trying to make 
slippery judgments on early stage ventures, which have no quantitative uh, guidelines, as I began by saying. All you've got is the ability to test your human judgment on a smart partner who will push back against you and say if they disagree. So I think the dynamics within venture companies, like that Monday morning meeting when you decide what to invest in, you've got six or seven partners around the table, that's super important. And when those dynamics are well managed, for example, when you don't have anchoring, to use a term from behavioral science, i.e. when I'm not just providing an opinion because two minutes ago I heard you say something in favor of this deal, so I want to be kind of close to where you are because I don't really know what I think because it's such a subjective judgment. If you can avoid that anchoring, everybody goes home on the weekend, reads the investment memo, makes up his or her mind, comes in on Monday morning, and is willing to express that view and, and, and support it with an argument, that's when you get better group dynamics. You arrive at a better investment decision. And I think... It's when you don't have that sort of partnership that you get what you referred to, Greg, where some VC doesn't want to do an investment, then hears that some other person that they respect has done it. So then they suddenly want to sprint into that deal as fast as they can. And this is sort of social proof. And it shows that you don't really have your own conviction. Right. Well, of course, the VCs have to pick companies to invest in, but the LPs have to pick GPs to invest in. And, and it seems there's a little bit of that kind of feedback loop happening there as well, right? So the successful VCs are find it easier to raise money than the unsuccessful ones or the old ones and established ones find it easier to find LPs than new ones. And so that means also that if they've done deals in the past, it, they find it easier to get access to deal flow, right, in the future. So does this lead to sort of persistence, market power? I mean, you, you tell the story of Kleiner Perkins, which sort of seems to refute that, right? But there does seem to be some persistence, right? There is, that's right. And for exactly the reasons that you say, that number one, if I've done a good deal last year, which might have just been completely lucky, I now have a halo uh, around my head and other entrepreneurs who would like to have endorsement from somebody who's perceived to be smart will come and see me. And so I get better deal flow. And as you say, also, I can turn around to the LPs and raise capital in larger quantities and spend less of my time doing it. Presumably, if I spend less of my time out on the road trying to raise money from LPs, I get to spend more time focusing on sourcing deals and I'll do better at that. So there are those dynamics. What's interesting, though, is I think they're not dispositive. You know, I almost didn't write the book because I thought, well, if it's just path dependency, initial luck in year one followed by path dependency, then there's no real skill and there's no real alpha and it's just not interesting. And it was only when I sort of made my third or fourth trip out to the valley to interview people that I began to see what the skill was and I began to see that path dependency does exist, but it's not determining all of the outcome. And I do tell that story about Kleiner Perkins going from hero to zero. In 2001, it was the most successful venture partnership in the whole world. And by 2011, 10 years later, it was not even in the top 10. So it proves that path dependency is not going to be a guarantee of success. And indeed, there is some academic literature that tries to quantify path dependency. And it's something like, if you make a good investment in one year, your odds of your investment in the next year or the year after being a 10x, 
is kind of it's increased, but it's increased by kind of a couple of percent or something. I think I forget exactly the number, but it's not as huge as one might suspect. Well, speaking of scale, I mean, you give specific examples of where VCs have kind of helped to redirect the startups that they're funding. And sometimes they do this by removing the founder, right? And shaking up the entire governance of the startup. Other times it's through carefully worded advice, right? And coaching. So sometimes you can think about exit versus voice, right? Exit's not really an option. So you have to express your voice, but there's two ways to do that. And one is through removal and one is through coaching. I was wondering if you could walk through a couple of those examples the example of Uber is particularly interesting because the founder had control of the voting shares and yet still wound up agreeing to be ousted. Yeah. So the canonical example of removing the founders from the kind of earlier history is Cisco, where you had this uh, husband and wife team who had come up with this multi-protocol router, basically the first router that, that didn't just work on one intranet but could start to connect up different kinds of intranet uh, and basically create the internet. And this was Cisco in 1987. And Sequoia invested because it got references from the early customers who had used the product. And they just loved it so much that they were kind of ripping down the door of Cisco and demanding to get more and more of these devices. So Sequoia did the deal, but it knew from the beginning that the founders were not really up to running a company that was going to scale a lot. They were erratic and lost their temper and so forth. And so they fired the founders. And that was a gutsy move. And it went down almost as a sort of an example of why entrepreneurs should hate VCs uh, for quite some time. But in terms of the investment outcome, it was genius. I mean, it certainly turned a company that was completely incapable of scaling to something that became one of the dominant firms in the Valley in the 1990s. But you're right that Uber is a more recent and in a way even more interesting example because there what happened is Benchmark was the venture capital company that backed them at the beginning. It was a great investment. It went really well. But at a certain point, rather as with Cisco, the tough-minded founder who was completely determined to get the company off the ground was not quite the right person to run the company once it had scaled. Because Travis Kalanick had a lot of drive, a lot of competitive determination. But when it came to running a bigger operation where actually you were in the public eye and you had to watch the ethics, you had to watch the legal compliance, you had to get the accounting right, he just didn't want to focus on that stuff. And when Bill Gurley, the benchmark investor, would tell him, look, Travis, you can innovate in lots of ways when you're doing a tech company, but don't innovate around compliance. Don't innovate around legal procedures. Don't innovate around the quality of the accounting. The financials have to be conservative and correct. The response from Travis Kalanick was basically to try to just marginalize Bill Gurley, rescind his permission to his key card, which led him into the Uber building, suddenly didn't work anymore, and so on. And because Travis had been given these super voting shares by the later investors, he could afford to just ignore the investor. And it took Bill Gurley to be kind of basically waging guerrilla warfare to get Travis out. And that involved building a legal case against some of what Travis was doing, building a coalition of other investors who saw that the brand value of Uber was being deeply damaged by some of the scandals that were coming out because of Travis's behavior. 
so in the end, Travis was pushed out and that sort of rescued Uber, uh, at least in my view, and set it up for the IPO, which would not have been possible otherwise. But you also talk about SoftBank and Tiger Global and even PIF coming in towards the end. And Yuri Milner, I think, is a character that played a big role in this whole story, right? But it seemed like Yuri Milner, at least, was someone who paid very careful attention to the the details of, of the businesses in which he was investing. Uh, some, some of the others may have been a little more reckless with, with their investing. And then you point to, I think Theranos, I mean, you talk about WeWork, but I think Theranos is, is the, the pinnacle of sort of dumb money investing. These folks were not venture capitalists at all. There, there weren't even, there weren't really that many venture capitalists that got their hands dirty with Theranos. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Theranos, the founder, essentially got money from people who were not of the valley or people who were kind of past the age of 70 and had retired. And so in terms of active venture capitalists, the only person who backed Theranos was, it was Tim Draper. And he wrote a, an angel check, which was small enough that I think it basically doesn't count. There's nothing wrong if you meet a smart, driven, charismatic kid who has a big dream saying, okay, well, why don't I write a, a check? I think it was half a million dollars, which not much for a venture firm. And we'll see what happens. I think where the bad investments came was later when you were talking about bigger checks. And by this point, Elizabeth Holmes was claiming to actually have a blood testing product that was beginning to work. But of course, she had faked all the data. And if you invested at that point, you were guilty of malfeasance, of not asking tough questions. And we know from the very good book that's been written about Theranos Bad Blood, that when Elizabeth Holmes tried to raise money from real venture capitalists at that stage, she would walk out of the meeting after the sort of the fifth question because she couldn't answer the questions. Uh, and the only way she could raise money was by going to kind of amateurs, venture tourists, not venture capitalists. So that's sort of a vindication for the professionals in the space. I think a, a more tricky one is actually FTX. You said you were teaching a class recently on crypto. And there you had somebody who turned out to be a fraud and pending the court's verdict, that's what it looks like today. And venture capitalists, including Sequoia, you know, poured money into that thing. Why did they do it? And I think there, partly it was COVID, that the due diligence was not face-to-face -face and was a bit sloppy. Partly it was this amazing crypto boom, which made it feel incredibly risky not to be involved. And so people were willing to write checks, even understanding that they hadn't done great due diligence. And I think you can rationalize that. I mean, some people say, oh, well, that's just FOMO. It's actually a bit more subtle than that. If you are a venture capitalist and you're sitting there in 2020 or so, and you're seeing that something like half of the smartest young engineers graduating from the top programs in computer science are going into crypto, you kind of need to be in touch with that flow of human talent even if what they're doing is nonsense and it's going to crash because you want a relationship with them for the next project that they do afterwards. It's just too risky to your franchise to be out of the network. We go back to our network theory discussion. As I think there was some excuse for writing those uh, checks to FTX, even though this was an example of something that turned out not quite as bad as Theranos because Theranos was to do with health and people's actual health was badly affected by the fraud. 
But still, FTX was approaching that level of badness. Well, I remember in 2017, there were people who were saying that we wouldn't need venture capital anymore because anybody could just issue a bunch of tokens right, and, and raise money for their startups. And of course, th this seemed ridiculous to me because the tokens that were sold didn't come along with any kind of advice. And, and so the, the smart founders would presumably continue to seek out kind of vent venture money. Of course, that didn't stop some of these companies from not getting good advice. But when it comes to in governance of a startup, you can lean on your VCs, but who can the VCs lean on? I think if you had just written the story of Kleiner Perkins versus Sequoia, that would have been a standalone book and it would have been an interesting kind of compare and contrast. And, and I think John Doerr would have been the, the tragic figure in that story. So if the governance and the organizational structure of the venture capital firm itself of the GP is going to impact its success, how can they make sure that, that they get the proper oversight so that you don't wind up with, with an echo chamber? Yeah, I mean, to some extent, there could be oversight from the LPs who say, look, if you want us to provide capital for you to invest, we want you to do the following things to make sure your operation is properly run. In practice, the sort of more successful GPs are not going to get that kind of pressure because they tend to be capacity constrained. In other words, they've got more offers of capital than they can actually accept because when you're doing early stage and venture, you can only write checks up to a certain size and it's very time consuming to write too many checks because you're then supposed to go on the board and pay attention to these companies. So you each partner at a GP probably can't be on more than about seven boards. And so you do the math and you just don't want too much capital. So uh, that means that the capital providers don't have that much leverage over the established GPs. So it kind of becomes a self-governing thing that the GPs have to be smart enough to say, all right, we should look internally. We shouldn't just look externally at the investments we're doing in these startups. We should look internally at ourselves and say, you know, if we were on our own board, <laughs> what would be we be telling ourselves to do? And I think that's where Sequoia stood out, actually, in the last 20, 30 years, because they had this stewards structure where the top one or two or three people, there's been different numbers of stewards at different times, it's really their job not to do investment so much, but to invest in the actual venture company. And Mike Moritz, who was the steward for a long period between the mid-90s and around 2010, would like to say, you know, in fact, I, I didn't ask him a, the right question to set him up to say this. And so he got a bit annoyed and said, I think you should be asking me this, and then I can answer as follows. And what he wanted to tell me was, look, people always ask me, what's my favorite investment? And they expect me to say, it must be your investment in Google or your investment in Yahoo or Stripe or Michael Moritz has done plenty of these things. But no, Michael Moritz's favorite investment is in Sequoia itself. It's in the time he spent sitting down with the younger partners and saying, okay, show me your calendar. I want to see how you spent your time. Um, could you have turned that meeting into a phone call? It would have been more efficient. How do you think about sitting on the, the board that you've just joined? What are you trying to contribute? When are you listening? When are you intervening? Really coaching people to be the best kind of GP they can be. Uh, and I think not all venture partnerships are led by people who conceive their role in that way. They still think of themselves as being outward facing and doing deals in startups, whereas they th should be devoting a lot of their time to the internal. Well, 
you know, it makes you wonder, will there ever come a day when you could kind of systematize what it is that, that the venture capitalists do? You know, we're, you talked to before the podcast about artificial intelligence and the investing in that landscape. But I mean, a lot of people have speculated on the ability to kind of learn from what the successful VCs have done and to come up with some kind of process that was more scientific, right? Which would kind of make venture more like other areas of, of finance. Do you think that's realistic? Do you think there's any chance that we could somehow create sort of a more factory-like system for identifying good investments and good founders and investing in them? My basic answer is no. I mean, I've met people who have been working on this. And one of the techniques you can use these days is you can scrape LinkedIn for leads about what certain talented engineers who are in the right company to understand a particular thing. What are they doing? So let's take an example. Let's suppose you, you are keeping tabs. You write some code that will keep tabs for you on all of the machine learning engineers who are working at the top five ML labs. And you're watching them on LinkedIn. And if they don't post or make any noise for a bit, you think, what's going on with them? Maybe that's because they're in stealth and they're thinking about starting a new venture. And so I should go see them prospectively, not wait for them to emerge from stealth, and then I might be too late. So there are people who are thinking about this, but I think fundamentally, the things which will not be you know, cannibalized by AI are things where A, the human-to-human -human contact is super important. And that is true of venture investing because it is about a venture capitalist, a human being meeting a startup entrepreneur they have to agree that they're going to be partners together and that this is going to be you know, something you can't exit very easily. And you're probably going to be meshed together if it goes well. You're, you're, you'll be doing a three-legged race for the next seven years. So you better get on. And the other thing is that AI, in addition to being not good at human to human, AI is essentially, of course, extrapolating brilliantly from everything that's happened in the past. And to the extent that you're talking about the future, it's a bit tougher. And then I would add, to the extent that the number of observations is limited, it's tougher. I mean, all of these programs work on extensive training. And to do a lot of training, you need a huge number of bits of data to train on. And venture is doesn't, it's not like some macro hedge fund or whatever that's, or just the public markets generally where there are gazillions of trades every day and you get tick-by-tick tick data and really break it down. No, this is something with a rather small number of observations where the judgments that are behind each of those deals were in, the, in themselves subjective and they're not quantifiable, they haven't been written down someplace. So I didn't quite see how you scrape enough data and, make, and put it into a shape where you can make a machine learning system work. So I do think that venture is a holdout in that respect. What I find interesting is that while the GPs understand the power law and they understand the, the difficulty in, in looking for patterns among uh, founders, the, 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 the LPs, right, they, they oftentimes will treat uh, venture uh, as an asset class, right? And they're looking for, for characteristics like mean return and 
standard deviation of return. <laughs> and so they'll, they'll, make, they'll make an allotment uh, and uh, they'll set aside some percentage of their, their portfolio. But, but it seems like you can't do that in, in venture. I mean, there's no index fund for venture. You have to go in and identify which firms you're going to invest with. And it seems like that problem is almost as difficult as deciding which portfolio company to invest in if you're a venture capitalist. I completely agree. I mean, specifically when we're talking about the early stage, the Series A, Series B stuff, I completely agree with that. I mean, what the LPs are doing is that they should be they should be looking at the GP and saying, is this an individual that I believe in? And it's a qualitative bet on an individual. Now, I have this conversation with LPs quite a bit because since my book came out, I've been asked to go and speak to lots and lots and lots of them. And the conversation typically goes like this. I, I say what I just said, and then they say, okay, so how do I judge which individual I should back? And I say, look, there are two obvious things and then two slightly less obvious ones. The obvious things are that most of the good GPs I wrote about in my book either had an engineering degree or some other skill which would add value to the portfolio company, maybe be an expert in go-to-market strategies. Secondly, they know something about business and finance, perhaps they have a business degree. Thirdly, they may have themselves started a startup or been an early employee in a startup. So that experience from the inside of being an entrepreneur. And you don't need maybe all three of those things, but you probably might need two. That's the obvious thing. The less obvious thing is that you need to be what I call embedded. You need to be in a network which is going to be generating startup founders. And you need to have standing in that network. You need to have thought leadership such that the founders that emerge from this network are going to want to come to you for money because they're also going to want you as their advisor. And that embeddedness is super important. And then the last thing is don't back an individual because of what I said earlier. It's much more powerful when you're doing very subjective judgments about early stage companies. It's much more powerful to have a team of four or five or six GP investors who can test each other's instincts on who to back and who not to back. So avoid the solo GPs, go for the embedded people and look for two or three of those characteristics, which are having worked at a startup, having a piece of advice that you can give either because you understand engineering, you understand marketing or something. And then thirdly, understanding the basics of business and investing. Now, what's interesting, at the beginning of the book, all of the venture capitalists were fairly experienced people. I mean, they'd, they'd been working in finance for, for a big chunk of their lives. And I remember when I came out to California to visit my cousin in 1989 or so, he said, oh, you should think about becoming a venture capitalist. And I thought, I can't do that straight out of school. But we're seeing people go, now go straight out of school into venture capital. It's actually a, a, a career that one can choose relatively early in life. Is that a sign? Is that a potential indicator <laughs> that the, the industry's too big? Or does that, is that just part of the natural evolution of this industry? I think we would find if we looked at which operations, which GPs were hiring people straight out of school, is it would probably be the growth investors. And the growth investors, they do have a rather different job that they're doing. They're not looking for the genius founder 
whose genius can only be told and identified through subjective methods. When you're doing growth investing, you already have a company with a product, with some market traction, with some earnings data. You can look at the rate of growth in that earnings data. You can project it forwards and you can do a calculation about whether this is a good growth investment. So that's a fundamentally... In other words, Excel, your Excel skills will be might actually have some value. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that's where it's a different kind of game and maybe hiring people straight out of college makes sense. Now, everyone, you, you know as well as I do that pretty much every place on earth is trying to replicate the Silicon Valley model, right? So Silicon Step, Silicon Plains, Silicon... Mountain, they're all trying to do this, but um, there really haven't been that many successful imitators. I mean, is that just sort of a location economies, or are there some structural impediments to to replicating what what happens in Silicon Valley? So I think that it's mostly about understanding the formula, understanding the secret source. And then having the guts to implement it in this sort of very risk-friendly power law understanding manner where you understand that eight out of 10 bets will probably go to zero or something. And you're going to make all the money from bets nine and 10, which each should be fund returners or better. Uh, and that's how you make it work. And it's just not human nature to lean into risk that aggressively. And the reason why there was not really any rival to Silicon Valley, at least I'd say until 2005 or so, is, is because this just doesn't come naturally to people. I would go and see people who had worked in so-called venture partnerships in Boston in the 70s. And they would say things like, well, I had a great career. I did 40 investments. I didn't lose money on a single one. And of course, that's laughable if you're in Silicon Valley. Of course, you should lose money on many of them. Otherwise, you're not taking enough risk. And so those so-called venture operators in Boston were not the real thing. And that's why Boston failed to rival uh, Silicon Valley as a technology cluster. My, my theory is that around about 2005, when um, Silicon Valley VC started to branch out and move into China, this secret source was bottled and exported. And it's you do see now a lot of venture activity in New York, in Boston. Austin is rising in the last few years. There was a lot of hype about Miami. I don't believe that one quite so much. But there's also growth in London. India's had some ups and downs, but there's some going on. Israel is a massive success story. Israel actually has more venture dollars per person than the US does. So there's been a decent amount of success outside of Silicon Valley because I think this formula, which I describe in the book, of understanding the power law, understanding the importance of equity and equity options, all that stuff we talked about before, that formula has been understood outside the valley. Now, you're working on a new book about artificial intelligence. There's a lot of excitement in the venture world uh, around generative AI. And do you think that we'll continue to see most of the innovation happening in the world of startups? Or do you think that we'll see a return to a period where no one's going to challenge IBM, right? At the beginning of the book, right? That was the thing. Don't even think about going into computers because IBM has it locked up. I mean, have we returned to that world where Google and Microsoft and Facebook, I mean, they're the ones that own the massive data sets and they're the ones that are ultimately going to be the loci of all the future innovation in this space? Yeah, I think that there's a good chance that a large share of the economics of the upside that's generated by AI will accrue to the incumbent behemoths. And this is sort of contrary to 
the premise of my book, so I don't say this lightly, because the premise of my book is that the incumbents have innovators dilemma. They don't want to put out a new product which will cannibalize their existing product. And therefore, they're always shy about aggressively grabbing some new technological wave. And that makes space for the startup challengers who are more nimble, who have nothing to lose, and, and so on. And I think it's different for a couple of reasons this time. One is that you know AI, as you just said, it favors scale. Scale in terms of how much data you have, scale in terms of how much compute you can afford, because these NVIDIA chips are very expensive and you have to have a lot of them. And then scale in terms of the human talent, because you need the machine learning engineers and they are highly sought after and very expensive to hire. So that's the first reason why the incumbents have this big advantage. And then the second reason is that I think that because the innovator's dilemma has been seen to hobble the incumbents, I mean, IBM, as you said, that was the classic scary giant that nobody wanted to mess with until people messed with it. And then funnily enough, the personal computer market was stolen from right under its nose. And so I think because of IBM's humbling and because of the humbling of successive big incumbents, the today's incumbents have sort of internalized that story so much that they are willing to do stuff like Mark Zuckerberg has done, which is to completely rename his entire company, call it Meta, and bet on this metaverse, even though the metaverse hasn't been built and may never actually be much. I mean, it's super aggressive, super risk-friendly. And I think if you look at the way that Microsoft is just pouring money into open AI and into generative AI more generally, it's an enormous bet, right? But it just speaks to that anti-complacency, the willingness to bet the farm on a, an emerging technology. And Google is kind of doing the same thing. It's empowered Demis Asabis, the head of uh, DeepMind in London, which is a subsidiary of Google, and it's taken this person in London, put him in charge of the whole AI team, including Google Brain in, in Mountain View, and said, before we said we were an AI company, now we're really AI first. And they're putting massive resources into fighting this fight. And so it seems to me that the incumbents are very aggressive. They have the advantage of scale. And where you see a challenger, a startup popping up, it tends to be fairly quickly folded into the empire of an incumbent. So first one was DeepMind, which I just mentioned, that was set up in 2010, acquired by Google in 2014. Then you have OpenAI set up in 2015, but sort of quasi-acquired now by Microsoft, which has put so much money in that it, it almost owns it. And now you have Anthropic, another challenger startup, which has taken large amounts of money, first from Google and now from Amazon. So the space for an independent, I think, is non-zero, right? There are other contenders like, um, you know, Cohere is one which is venture-backed, backed by a, a group in Canada called Radical AI or Inflection AI, another startup. So, so it's not that I'm saying there's no space for startups. I just think that unlike previous new platforms, whether that's the internet, the mobile internet, the cloud, which where the economics were basically all captured by insurgent startups. I think this time the the incumbents uh, have a better shot at winning most of the profits. Well, I look forward to that book, and I also look forward to seeing whether those prophecies turn out to be true. We're in for a couple of very interesting uh, years uh, in both AI and in VC. 
Sebastian, thanks so much for joining me. The, the book is called Power Law. It, it is one of the best books that I have read on venture capital, particularly on the history of venture capital. But don't forget this one here, More Money Than God, fantastically written book about the hedge fund industry. And this one is still good. The World's Banker. Thanks so much. We'll talk again soon. Greg, it was great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.